Welcome to the Mosaic Church Sermon Podcast. Mosaic Church seeks to engage the modern age with the historic Christian faith. If you don't have a home church, please don't use this podcast as a substitute for being a member of a local community of faith. Whether you call Mosaic your home or not, we hope that you find this sermon convicting and encouraging in your walk with Jesus. Here's our lead pastor, Pastor Greg Brown, with this week's sermon. We're going to be back in our series in 1 Corinthians. Uh, We're calling this Life and Church by the Book, because the book of 1 Corinthians really hits a broad swath of the Christian life. We're sort of trying to to move through this this book and ask ourselves, how should we shape our lives? How should we shape this church? Because how many of you all know that you have a responsibility? If you're a member of this church, you have a responsibility to shape this church. This isn't just the pastor's church. We were talking about this the other day. We were talking about some ecclesiology in a, a meeting, Brandon and I. And, uh, and I, I was talking to him about how in some churches, the church is the pastors. The church would exist if, the, if it was just the pastors in the church. They would continue to call it a church, and because there's a top-down leadership organization, they would continue to funnel funds to this church, and then the, you would have essentially like a one- or two-member church. It's very strange stuff. This is not the ecclesiology that we have at this church. We together are the church. That's the answer, right? It's not just some legal organization. It's not a building. It is the entirety of the membership of this church that constitutes this church. And so you all have a responsibility as you engage with the scriptures to help us to come together and to form and shape this church. Uh, We've been talking about this a lot because uh, there's a lot of kind of things in the works, and I'm trying to make sure that I'm being clear about what my ecclesiology is, what my view of the church is, and what I believe is a biblical view of the church, and that is simply that. You are responsible. That is, the membership of this church is responsible for the work of ministry that this church does. We are all in this together, and we are responsible for this church. And so we go to the, to the one true authoritative object, not object, but uh, thing in this world, which is God's word. And we ask, how should the church be? What should we do in light of the salvation that we've been given? And so again, we're in 1 Corinthians. We'll be in chapter 10 today, starting in verse 14, if you're uh, flipping there. Um, And it's going to be, I think last week was a little bit of hellfire and brimstone, uh, if you you were there. Uh, uh, Yeah, like if you listen to the podcast, um, I admit that it was a little bit... uh, Sinners in the hands of an angry God sort of moment, uh, if, you, if you're familiar with the Jonathan Edwards sermon of that name. Um, this, this sermon will be a little bit different. Um, still asking you to flee from idolatry, which is really the context of this passage, but uh, hopefully uh, we will take a deep dive today. And I'm just going to try to give you what I have learned as I've studied this passage today. So a little bit different style, uh, and hopefully you will leave here edified, helped, uh, and ultimately fleeing from idolatry, which is, the again, the point of the passage. So let's read it together. If you would, uh, don't mind, please stand with me as we read God's word this morning, um, if you are able. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting in verse 14 through 22, says this, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? 
Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? May God bless the reading of his word. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord God, I pray this morning that you would give us an understanding of your word. Lord, illuminate your word to us. For Lord, we know that we cannot rightly divide the word except by the Holy Spirit. So Lord, give us an increased measure of your spirit this morning. That Lord God, we might understand and that Lord, we might ultimately flee from idolatry and cling to Christ. Lord, may you be the only God in our lives. And Lord, where we have fallen short, correct us. Help us, Lord, to leave those idols behind, to break them and to leave them where they belong. Lord, I pray that you would help us this morning to see where those idols lie in our own lives. Help us to see that, Lord, we have created these small g gods that sit before you. Lord, correct us. Help us, Lord God, to cling to Jesus. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Y'all can have a seat. As we approach this passage, I think it's very important that we consider the first word of verse 14, therefore. If you're new to Christianity, if you're just new to studying your Bible, this is an important hermeneutical tool, that's an interpretive tool, uh, for understanding what the scriptures have to say, what God is saying through his word. When you see the word therefore, you should be looking back at what was just said. If I said, here I am, therefore, or something else, like you would assume that me being here had to do with the thing I was about to say. Again, Paul says, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. And so we have to look backward. We have to look and see what Paul has already presented. We have to concern ourselves with the logical argument that he is presenting in this letter. Because Paul is engaging our minds, our brains, with a logical and rational argument about who God is and who we should then be. So he says, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. That therefore means since we are, since not all who are part of the visible church will be saved, and since we should take heed lest we fall. That's the therefore that's linked to that. So let me back up for a second. Last week we talked about the difference between the visible church and the invisible church. If you weren't here, here's a refresher. The visible church is the people around you. It's the people who participate in the life of a Christian church somewhere. It's the people that would say and profess, I believe in Jesus, and they look like Christians. That's the visible church. The invisible church is everyone everywhere who was ever truly saved and will be saved. That's the invisible church. We cannot see the invisible church. Only God knows the invisible church. But the point of Paul's passage here in the, in the beginning of the, the chapter was simply that not all who are participants in the church, he's 
Uh, he made, makes an analogy here between the Old Testament church and the New Testament church, but he's saying that not all who are participants here in this place will necessarily be saved. He's saying you can't just come to church and think that you're good with God. That's not how it works. You can't just come to the table. This is really what the Corinthians were probably thinking. They were thinking, if I come to the table and I take these elements, that makes me good with God and everything is fine. I can go do whatever else I want. I have my fire insurance, we're good. I can go worship whatever other deity that I want. I can participate in these ritual sacrifices if I want because I know I'm good with God. It's fine. No, it's not fine. Amen? So Paul says, therefore, since not all who are part of this visible manifestation of God's people will ultimately make it to the promised land, and therefore, since, uh, since people need to consider their own standing lest they fall, he says, therefore, based on those things, then flee from idolatry. He says, get away. He's really just recapitulating what Second uh, Peter 1.10 says. Uh, it says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, these are all sorts of good things that he just mentioned, you will never fall. The opposite is also true. If you are diligent in practicing negative things, idolatry, for example, you will fall. This is how it works. And so we're supposed to take heed, supposed to consider whether our lives reflect true faith in Christ. We have to know that God provides this way of escape from temptation as well. Let me reiterate, reiterate that as well. That he says, take heed lest you fall. He says, flee from idolatry, all these wonderful things. And he says, I promise you that if you are tempted, I will provide a way of escape. What a wonderful thing. And so Paul then says, therefore, flee from idolatry. To be an idolater is to be separated from God. God is a, a jealous God. We see this in the end of the passage. He says, I claim absolute sovereignty and perfect ownership over the entirety of your life, bar nothing. How do we know this? Exodus 20, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. Simple enough. Simple enough. He continues on, though. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. That's an interesting word to use. If you practice idolatry, you are a God-hater. But showing steadfast love to thousands who love me and keep my commandments. That first commandment, though, really covers the whole thing. You shall have no other gods before me. I think I said it last week, maybe a couple of weeks ago. That means you shall have no other gods in my presence. It doesn't just mean in order before God or above him. It means nowhere in his presence. No other gods. So Paul says, flee from idolatry because it is antithetical to the Christian worldview. It is antithetical to who God is. We cannot worship other things and God at the same time. It is impossible. And so Paul then continues on 
In verse 15, he says, I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. I felt like when I first read this, there might have been a little bit of sarcasm there. I was using a lot of sarcasm last week. This is kind of funny sarcasm too. He's like, I am speaking to you as sensible people. Because they were being a little nonsensical, <laughs> but he calls them sensible. And in fact, this is actually a, a terrific way to, to engage someone in true conversation, isn't it? I'm speaking to you as sensible people. I'm inviting you. And he, says, he even says, judge for yourselves what I say. He says, I'm inviting you to consider. I'm not simply giving you the law. Right? I'm not just giving you objective truth. I'm saying, hey, come with me on, a, on an intellectual journey. And let me, I invite you to just consider these things. Paul doesn't tell the Corinthians to just trust their feelings. He doesn't appeal to their emotions. He encourages them to, to come with him on an under, a journey of understanding. That, that word there, uh, sensible, means wise, means understanding or shrewd. As I speak to you as understanding people. There's a side note to be made here that Christianity is not primarily a religion of feelings, emotions, and experiences. Now, some of you will go too far the other direction, and so I'll, I'll balance this for you, okay? Christianity is a religion of both love and sound doctrine. If you leave out love, you have dead religion. And if you leave out good doctrine, you have false religion. Idolatry. So Paul invites them. He says, come, consider these things with me. And so this morning, if you switched off your brain at the doors, when you came to worship this morning, it's time to repent. Don't switch off your brain when you come to church. That's not how it works. God ministers to the whole person, mind and soul, both, all the things. And we even put this stuff on the outside. You want to use the tripartite uh, distinction of, of, of personhood, right? You have the, the, the mind, will, emotion sort of thing, or you have body, uh, mind, and spirit, that kind of thing. God ministers to all of it. And, we, and so we put it on the outside, don't we? We do physical things in the course of worship. We sing. It's a physical thing, right? So we engage our bodies, we engage our hearts, we engage our minds. And Paul, even further in the book of 1 Corinthians, will tell us that we should seek to make our minds fruitful in prayer. He says, I could speak in tongues and everything else, and my mind is unfruitful. I would rather my mind be fruitful. And so don't come to church just expecting to have an ecstatic experience. Come with your whole self. Don't leave your joy at the door, but also do not leave your mind at the door. And so Paul comes to these people and he says, I'm speaking to you as sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. And so he continues on. Verse 16, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Now there's a pretty clear parallelism here. He's saying the cup is the blood and the bread is the body, right? Like pretty clear stuff. I think we generally know this here as we approach the, the Lord's table. These are symbols. Um, but he uses this really interesting word in this passage. He says, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? Now, how many of you think that that's an interesting turn of phrase? I think that's an interesting turn of phrase. 
a participation in something. It's, very, it's a very interesting turn of phrase, and when I see something like that, when I see a word like that that seems a little different, a little out of place, I tend to do a word study on that stuff. I don't look at the Greek for every single word. I'm not a Greek scholar. Uh, if you were expecting a Greek scholar, I'm sorry. Um, I'm not that guy. Uh, I wish I knew more Greek. I, I know how to use electricon. Uh, that's about it. However, I, did, I do tend to do word studies on these interesting words and passages. And he says, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? This is the Greek word koinonia. Uh, it means communion. This is where we get the, the word communion from. Is it not a fellowship? That's another way to put it. Or a close association. It also means sharing in. And so the, he's saying that these, the, the cup and the bread of the Lord's Supper are the outward signs of actual spiritual communion with Christ. He's making a, a spiritual claim here. He's saying that when you come to the table and you consume these elements, that there is a spiritual reality to it. We participate in the body and the blood of Christ. Now, some of you are getting worried that I'm going to take a, a very Catholic view of, uh, of what they call the Eucharist. Uh, no, <laughs> I'm not. However, uh, there are a lot of different views on, on communion, on the Lord's Supper. And if you're a student of historical theology and things of that nature, you'll know that, that Martin Luther had one view where he said, you know, the, when, you, when you partake of the different elements, then Christ's body is really spiritually present as you consume those things and that somehow his, his literal glorified body and blood come down to be consumed by you. Very strange, very interesting, uh, very close to our, our Catholic friends, uh, <laughs> or the, his Catholic friends who were not his friends at that time. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, and then there was another guy called, uh, I think it was Ulrich Zwingli. You gotta give it that ZV uh, sort of, it's actually a W, but you gotta pronounce it Zwingli. It's a good name. Um, <laughs> my parents should have called me Zwingli. Anyway, uh, that's, a good, that's a good name. So this guy came along and he said, no, 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 it's pure memorial. He says, no, it's just, a, it's just an outward symbol. It's just a sign. It, it, the bread and the, the, the wine, the, the juice, as it were, right? Like all of these things, like they, they're just symbols. And that's all they are. They're just things. But there's a, there's a moderate view in between those, and it's the one that I tend to take. And it, uh, based on this passage, uh, I think this is affirmed, that there is a spiritual reality as we approach the Lord's table. That when we come and we consume these elements in faith, that we have communion really and spiritually with Christ in that moment. And while we aren't consuming his, his body and blood in a literal sense, we are receiving the benefits of his broken body and his shed blood. And we, this is why I continuously pray as I bless the elements on those weeks that I present communion, that he would bless it to our souls, that they would be true spiritual food and drink to our souls, and that he would give us preserving, persevering grace. I believe that there is something spiritual that happens here, and I believe that Paul is getting at that. Because it's not only a remembrance. It's a spiritual reception, a participation in the body and blood of Christ. You have to admit that is spiritual language, a participation in the body and blood of Christ. It's not really here in front of us, but he says it is a participation or a sharing in. Look, this doesn't mean that the Lord's Supper saves you. It does not. But there is a spiritual component to it. 
Look at, uh, you, can, you can look for yourselves at 1 Corinthians 11. We'll get there in a, a couple of weeks. He says that some people have become sick and some have even died because they partook of the Lord's Supper unworthily. There's a spiritual component to this. Otherwise, why would God treat it with such particular concern? But even later in this passage, he references participation in ritual meals in other religions as actual fellowship with demons, which is a spiritual reality. If that's true, then how much more must it be true when we participate in the Lord's Supper in faith? There's a spiritual reality to the Lord's Supper. So we should never participate in the table trivially, should we? Just because we do it every week doesn't mean it's trivial. It isn't small. We should approach with respect, honor. We should treat it with sanctity. Because real participation or sharing in the body and blood of Christ is important to us. And it's holy. And when we partake in faith, those spiritual things are happening even if we can't perceive them with our physical eyes. But you might say, well, what about the person who doesn't partake in faith? What about the person who comes because they feel like, you know, some peer pressure, and so they come to the table and they, they partake unworthily, maybe in an unbelieving state? I would still argue that there is a spiritual thing happening here. They're still professing belief through association. They're still receiving the benefits of this association, belonging, fellowship, and friendship. And they are at least rubbing shoulders with the spiritual nature of the thing being done. They may not be receiving the benefits, but they are closely associated with what is happening truly and deeply in the Lord's Supper. Are you picking up what I'm laying down a little bit? Continue on. Participation, sharing in, close association. Paul says that when we come and we partake of these elements, we are sharing in the body and the blood of Christ. And he goes on, verse 17, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, and we, for we all partake of one bread. This is an interesting side point. I don't think he absolutely needed to make it here, but man, it's helpful. He's saying, because we all come to the table together, we partake of one bread together, then there is a communal aspect to this. And so we are continually associated with one another through the table. Yes, we, are uni you are, we experience unity in Christ with one another. We believe this, yes? When we, all, when, you, when we become Christians, we become brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the language that we use. We are one body. We are not many bodies. We are one body. And he says that the Lord's Supper is another sort of recapitulation of that spiritual reality, that when we come together, we are showing ourselves to be one body. And he says, partake in this, in this passage, for we all partake of the one bread. Uh, this is also a way to say share in, but it's more like as a meal. Now, it's interesting that we have all these little individually wrapped things before us when we uh, come to the table, right? Um, ultimately, it's, we've probably lost something uh, in what the early Christians would have done, what, what Jesus did at the Last Supper, right? We've lost something because it was one loaf, it was one, at least a set of flat bread, probably, and then one cup that was poured out of or drank out of, passed around. 
We come together and we consume one bread, one cup. There's some beautiful symbolism there. I, I was talking about how uh, wine is wonderful, uh, a wonderful symbolism in, in the Lord's Supper, and maybe we've lost something by not using wine because there's bitterness in the cup, and yet it makes glad the hearts of men. And so there's this other thing that maybe we've lost to history, which is that we come together to partake, to share in one bread and one cup. It says, Paul, Paul says here that because there is one bread, then we, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. And he means that spiritually, I think, when he is speaking of that the second time. And so we are one, yes, at the moment of salvation, but we are also particularly one as we partake of this meal together in faith. I admit that some of this is a divine mystery. There's a reason that we use the word sacrament around here uh, to refer to the Lord's Supper and to baptism. Many Baptists use the word ordinance. Uh, you may have heard ordinance more, more consistently. Uh, but because I really truly believe that there is a spiritual aspect to what we do and that there, there is a mysterious thing that happens in the, the course of the Lord's Supper when we partake in faith, I call it a sacrament. Sacrament means mystery, right? It's a mystery that God has revealed to us, that he's given to us for our good. So as if Paul needed to say more, he continues on. Uh, verse 18, consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar. This is an interesting one. He continues to, to provide a little bit more ammunition to his argument before he tries to finally slam it home. And so he says, first, when you come to the Lord's table, table, is it not a participation in, a sharing in the body and blood of Christ? And then he says, but look even at the Old Testament church, the, the Jews, even at this time, the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar. Again, the same word, koinonia, are they not, or actually it's koinonios in this particular part of the passage. And he's saying, are they not sharers in the altar? when they eat the meal that has been associated with it. Now, there's a few important things to be clear about here, and that's that Paul is not saying that the Lord's Supper is a type of sacrifice. Our Catholic, uh, uh, the, the, the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, uh, believes that every time that they put forward the, the, the body and the blood of Christ in the form of these, uh, these elements, that they are re-sacrificing Jesus. That's Catholic doctrine. Yeah, it's pretty important. I see your face. <laughs> That's not great. Not right. And it's important that we read this passage and, and understand this. Paul is not saying that when we come to the Lord's Supper that there is some sort of sacrifice. Note that he is speaking about the uh, eating of the sacrifices, the ritual meal post-sacrifice. So the sacrifice has already happened. Maybe it has happened somewhere over here. And then the people of Israel could come and they could consume the sacrifice. They could eat what was produced by the burning of that thing. This is a normal uh, sort of thing, especially the Levites would be provided for at, off of the altar. You might think that the altar was a place where they just burnt things to an ash uh, all the time. No, they cooked stuff. And people would consume it and eat it. And they would become participants in the altar. So he's saying that when the people of Israel sacrifice, when they eat that meal, 
that's associated with the altar they become participants in, close associates with, sharers in the altar. So he goes on. Verses 19 through the first part of 20. says, what do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. No. Food and idols are still nothing. If you remember back to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul speaks uh, for, for a decent amount of time on how he agrees uh, up front with the position of the Corinthians that idols are nothing. There is no God but one. And that the food that is sacrificed to idols is nothing. Food does not commend us to God, he says. And so he, had, he says, yes, well, you're, you're correct, Corinthians. You're correct that, that idols are just carved wood. And food is just fuel for the work set before us. That's it. Neither creative, a created object will commend us to God or condemn us. It means that if you see an idol, or you see food that was sacrificed to an idol or something like that, you, touching it, dealing with it, whatever else, is not going to condemn you. It's not going to cause you to be spiritually unclean or, or something like that. Those things are nothing. Now, some of you may be weaker in conscience than that, but Paul affirms the reality there. Idols are nothing. Food is nothing. It's whatever. It's just created stuff. However, he then begins in the second part of uh, verse 20. I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. Okay. <laughs> now it's getting serious. Now it's getting serious. Because what he's saying is that there is a spiritual reality to even if you go to an idol's temple and you consume the food that was cooked on the altar, if you do that, then you are participating in what they do. You're participating in the altar. So your friend invites you to a mosque, or a synagogue for that matter, or some other religious ceremony. You go in knowing full well that you don't believe what they believe. You're not tempted by their belief system. You're not tempted to, to add any of this stuff to your actual beliefs. You believe in Christ. You, you, you know where you stand. But you stand when they tell you to stand. You sit when they tell you to sit. You bow down when they tell you to bow down. You, you don't obviously distance yourself in any way. You just go and you go through the motions. You're like, what's the big deal? It's just stuff. It's just actions. I can raise my hands and it means nothing, right? I can raise my hands. It means nothing. I can bow down and it means nothing. I'm not, in, I'm not bowing down in my heart, you would say. What's the big deal? You don't believe this stuff? See, the big deal is that you are now associating yourself with that religion. You may not be a, a, a believer in that religion, a member of that church perhaps, or a member of that mosque, but in the eyes of others and for all practical outward purposes, even if just for a moment, you are a participant in that worship. This is why in, in the Old Testament, Daniel and his friends wouldn't bow down to Nebuchadnezzar, right? says, look, no, I, we will not bow down. Why? They could have just believed in their hearts, right? They could have just believed that God was, well, like they were okay with God and that they were just doing this thing and it was just a physical thing, it was nothing. 
They could have said that. No, they did not do that. They said, we will not bow down because even if in their hearts they were not bowing down to Nebuchadnezzar, they were still bowing down to Nebuchadnezzar in reality. At the very least, they would have been associating themselves with idolatry. Paul says that those who participate in these things are sharing in demons. That's actually what that phrase, I do not want you to be, uh, sorry, uh, yeah, the last piece of 20, I do not want you to be participants with demons. That phrase could, is also equally well phrased, I do not want you to share in demons. There's a spiritual reality to the worship of other religions that we should be conscious of. Sure, look, it's subjectively different for you than it is for the true believers who go there to worship. But there is a spiritual aspect of the consumption of meat offered to idols, the participation in a ritual worship of another religion. It is repugnant for Christians to have fellowship with demons by participating in the rituals associated with idols. A Christian may not be worshiping in those moments with their heart, but they are certainly participating and fellowshipping and sharing in the worship of demons. This should not be so. It's, you might be going, well, well how, how is that true? Well, in the same way that people who don't have saving faith are associated with Jesus in the Lord's Supper when they partake. They're associated with Jesus. Even if you don't believe, you come get the, the elements of the Lord's Supper, you, even if you don't believe, you are experiencing fellowship and unity with others in that moment. You are experiencing the benefit of a free meal or a snack in our case. Only a small thing, right? It used to be you could take a big hunk of bread and it was a cup of, yeah, anyway. Again, something we've missed from the early church. Those people are viewed as one with the church. How can they be visually distinguished? They're not. Those people may even receive greater pastoral care or benevolence because of this association. Think about someone who does not believe and yet comes to the table every week, who says all the right things even when they don't believe in their hearts. They still experience the benefits of being associated with Jesus. It's not the final benefit. They're not saved, but they're experiencing practical benefits. They're associated with Christ in that moment. No, they are not worshiping Jesus, and no, they are not finally saved unless they confess faith in Christ, but they are certainly associated with him. And in the same way, Christians who participate in the religious ceremonies and rituals of other religions are at least temporarily sharing in demons. Because behind every non-Christian religion, there are demonic forces at work. Amen? Most people, look, most people aren't trying to worship demons. They're not trying to worship demons. But they are worshiping something other than God, and that's what the demons want. Maybe they're worshiping a figment of their imagination. This happens often in Eastern religions, things like that. Hinduism, lots of different gods. Not necessarily worshiping an idol, but you worship a figment of your imagination. Maybe you worship philosophy, mankind, nature, self. Lots of people worship demons because they're worshiping those things. God commands us to worship only him, though. But Satan and his 
demons are more than happy to lure you as Christians to come and to associate yourself with them so that they can lure others so that they can have them worship pretty much anything other than Christ. When Paul says flee from idolatry, he doesn't just mean stop worshiping idols, by the way. He's saying cut off all fellowship with demonic worship. Flee does not mean stand here with one foot in the door just because your friends are over here. He says run from it. He doesn't say just stand outside the door. He says run from it. It's insidious. It invades your life. And he continues on. He says, I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Again, the people of Corinth were thinking that maybe if they came to the table that they would somehow be protected from all these other things. And Paul is saying, no, you can't just take the table and then go to an idol's temple and think you're okay. You're not. Don't go near that stuff. Don't mess with it. His final reason to flee from idolatry is simply that you cannot have fellowship with God and fellowship with demons. It is impossible. And so idols have no place before our God and those who participate in idolatry cannot rightly take the Lord's Supper or expect to experience its spiritual benefits. You come to the table, you have idols in your life, you can't expect this to be a good spiritual experience for you. Perhaps God will give you correction. Perhaps he would give you discipline. Yes, I pray that that's true. But the Lord's Supper isn't isn't primarily for that purpose. It's to give you hope and remembrance. It's to help you to walk that road before you. You can't have fellowship with demons and with God. Because Christianity is an exclusive religion. By that I mean that God claims absolute, complete, and total dominion over our lives. We looked at Exodus 20, verse 3 already. We may not have any other little g-gods, period. End of story. No ifs, ands, or buts. And I will tell you for certain that this is far easier said than done. In the Corinthian context, Paul, Paul's command seemed clear and maybe even easy, right? Worship God alone and steer clear of meals at the local temple of Artemis. Easy enough. It's a nice little checklist, Right? You'd think that would be easy. You, but it, while it might be simple, it is simple, I want to remind you that this would not have been easy for the Corinthians. Because temples were places of communal gathering. These were large celebratory communal meals. They're like, hey, like everybody come on out. After we have the sacrifice, you don't have to come to the sacrifice, come on out and just have a barbecue with us. The Corinthians would have gone and said, okay. Sounds, sounds like fun. No. Paul's saying run from that. Get away from it. He's saying do not participate in the altar of demons. The Corinthians were being called to live very differently from the world that they lived in. They were being called to disassociate themselves with this stuff. There's plenty of things in this world 
with which we should disassociate ourselves because it is essentially idol worship. And so, I'll be honest with you, on one hand, I, I don't want you to feel crushed by the weight of this command. But on the other hand, I don't want you to assume it no longer applies just because we're not tempted to go and worship the little carved wooden, wooden thing that we have sitting in our house. I said it last week, idolatry, idol worship is alive and well, and it even sits inside the church. But it can be insidious and hard to spot. So we need a definition here. The Heidelberg Catechism, question 95, gives us a great, solid, biblical definition of idolatry. It asks, what is idolatry? Great, simple question. Simple answer, idolatry is having or inventing something in which one trusts in place or alongside the only true God who has revealed himself in his word. Having, Having or inventing something in which one places their trust alongside, that means equal to, or, uh, or in place of, the one true God. In his commentary on this passage, Matthew Henry provides very good insight. He extends the definition of idolatry to include gluttony and drunkenness. And he surmises that those who make food and drink their source of joy alongside God make their own tables the tables of demons. Y'all getting quiet today. Likewise, lots of things can become idols. Health can become an idol. Some people would gladly miss church, but never miss the gym. But then how do we flee from idolatry? What if, how, how do we deal with all of this? If, if fleeing means cutting off fellowship with demonic worship and we can make idols of almost anything, how do we truly flee And look, I I will wholeheartedly admit to you that this application is difficult. This is the place where theology meets practice and it is rarely easy or simple. It wasn't easy for the Corinthians and it won't be easy for us either, but Christ, Christ is worth it, church. So this means that we cannot rightly participate in the religious ceremonies of other religions. This is first, like if you're going to walk away with a few things, this is one of them, right? Perhaps, there is a way for you to watch and be clearly distinguished as an observer of something that is happening in a religious service of another religion, but perhaps, but it is better not to be associated with it at all. Run. Maybe that seems easy, but the rituals of modern idolatry are commonly accepted in our society. Many make a ritual out of drunkenness. It is religious worship. They're worshiping alcohol or they're worshiping themselves. And I'm going to include mind-altering drugs under drunkenness, okay? Like biblical definition of drunkenness, like the opposite of sober-mindedness, all right? Like simple enough. Includes all those things. And so Christian, if you are out with your friends and they're all drunk or high, even if you're not, you've got to ask yourself what you're doing there. Look, it's one thing to end up in a place where everyone around you is drunk and you didn't expect that. It is another thing to commit to that and say, yeah, I'll be your DD. Even if you don't participate, you're still associated with their ritual worship of alcohol. Plenty of other things that we can make idols. I was talking with Pastor Brandon uh, in the back a minute ago and 
we were talking through different things that could potentially become idols, and uh, we, were, we were talking about how often even, even our children can become idols. Who rules your life, parent? Do you, does God, or does your child? Far too many, far too many, especially millennial parents, end up letting their kids rule their lives and their kids are the source of their true joy, their true happiness, not God. It is good to be a good parent. But it is terrible to make your kids your idol. I saw a statistic the other day. This is disturbing, all right? I saw a statistic that said that in this one study that was done, 20% of Gen Z is bringing mom or dad to their job interview. This is a sign to me that millennials have made their kids their gods and they are serving them alone. They've failed to teach them according to biblical principle. They have failed to lead them as God has said to lead them and they have made their kids their gods. One more thing that, that I'll mention, and I realize I'm picking on a few things. Look, there are a multitude of things that are idols. Anything can become an idol to you, okay? I want you to be aware of that. But one other subject that I've found interesting, it's been in some discussion recently, is, uh, is yoga, right? Some people like to practice yoga. It's good for your body, right? Lots of good stuff. Stretching, things like that, it's all good, right? That, the physical aspect of that, good for you. And look, I don't know a whole lot about yoga, but... Like, I mean, look at me. <laughs> I can't touch my toes, y'all. Uh, there, there's no chance. Um, <laughs> but look, if there is a religious aspect to your yoga class, then I would tell you that you are associating with demonic worship. I have to admit that, again, I, I know very little here, but the things that I looked up on Google showed me that there is, like, they, they call it a sequence or, or an order. I call it a liturgy to these classes. They start with centering and meditation. Usually, in Eastern meditation, I know a little bit about that, that means emptying yourself and then looking within for your source of meaning. That's centering. That is abhorrent to Christian doctrine. Christ never says, just don't think about anything. He says, focus on me, me alone. Look outside yourself for your source. And then there's these different things that you, they have you do. And there's, there's, a, there, there's the beginning of it, which is some sort of like awakening sort of thing. And then at the very end of it, there's like a death pose, like in this one thing that I read. It is a liturgy, people. And whether this stuff is clearly associated with demonic worship or not, I will leave up to your conscience. Consider it, though. Is it demonic worship? Is it closely associated with the Hindu philosophy of yoga that it could be demonic worship? Is your teacher a Christian, a good Christian, a doctrinally sound Christian? Probably not. Just saying. Again, I realize I'm stepping on some toes here, and I'm not, I'm not trying to say that all stretching is <laughs> or poses or whatever are evil. But consider these things when you're participating in this, if you choose to do this. Like I said, I, I know I'm just picking on some stuff, but 
These are the things that, I, that I've considered to be maybe particularly poignant for this church body. I know that there's a lot more, though. The list feels infinite. You can make your spouse your idol. You can make comfort your idol. You can make power your idol. You can make money your idol. You can make, you could, we could, we could make this service an idol. Like what, what we do here, like having, like we could make it so that, that having a sound system would be essential to the nature of the church and we would end up worshiping the sound system as subservient to God, but still a form of God. It's weird, man. It's not okay. Anything can become an idol. If that breaks you that you don't have something, get rid of it. It's an idol. Paul's command in verse 14, flee from idolatry, is so broadly applicable to every area of our lives, it's hard to come down on some singular, clear points of applications for everybody here, right? It's difficult. I mean, the fact is that, like I said, anything can become an idol, and so what do we do? And I think ultimately we find that the, the ritual practices associated with these things really become clear to us when we, when we actually see them. There's a, there was a, uh, a court case where uh, a man was testifying uh, about the nature of pornography. And uh, I think this is back in the 50s. There was about a movie that was being censored. And he's, like, he was actually arguing that the movie was fine, but it was interesting that, like, I think his answer is kind of helpful here. He said, uh, I can't describe to you precisely what pornography is, but I know it when I see it. And I think, I think, given the fact that we have the Holy Spirit within, a, within us, if we are conscientious about the nature of the rhythms of our lives, that we will be able to spot idolatry if we stop and think about it. When something else begins taking the time you should be devoting to God, that thing has become an idol. When you find more comfort in something other than God, you have an idol. When you have more joy in something that is divorced from God, it's an idol. There are ways to give thanks for good things. Just because something is good or just because it brings you joy does not mean that it is necessarily an idol, but if it is divorced from God, if you can't say, thank you, Lord, for this, then you've got an idol. It stands alone outside of God. You derive all of your hope and your joy from that thing, and even if you can mouth the words, thank you, Lord, for this, but if that thing fell away and you would be broken... Perhaps it's an idol. Flee from these things, Christian. Flee from them. Matthew 18, 8 through 9 says, And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet and to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than two eyes and be thrown into the hell of fire. Christian, you cannot practice idolatry and have fellowship with God. You cannot. But doing this means that you have to take a deep, objective look at your own life. There's a book that I'm reading recently that says that like, 
and there's a lot of stuff in there I disagree with, but there's one particular thing that the author said, and I, I found it interesting. We have the gift of being able to think objectively about our own thoughts. We can set ourselves outside of our thoughts, and we can stand in judgment over them. Very interesting. It's a good psychological uh, sort of mindset. But it requires us to stop and think and consider. And look, I know life is busy. Things are distracting. There's all sorts of stuff going on. You've got your phone going off constantly. You've got kids. You've got people coming around. You've got work. You've got everything else that you have to do. But you need to spend some time in deep introspection, considering who you are in light of who he is. It's never, who am I? Who do I want to be in isolation? It's who is God and who am I in light of him? Who should I be in light of him? Where those don't line up, you may have idols. Helps you to see where you fall short. In that moment when you find something that makes you think, oh, I've fallen short, that is a moment for mourning. First and foremost, okay? It's a moment to mourn your sin. But it is also a moment for joy when you repent and believe. There's freedom in Christ. God will provide the way of escape, Christian. The passage we read this past week. He will provide the way of escape. In those moments, ask yourself if things have become an idol, and, and when, they, when you do, you, only get, you can experience God's forgiveness, that joy, by first repenting. Okay? Remove your faith, remove your, you know what faith means? It means, it means active trust. Okay? That's what faith means. Remove your faith from that thing, whatever it is, and place it firmly in Christ. First. Second, pray. Ask God for forgiveness and strength against temptation. If it is something in your life that is necessary, then pray about it before you do it. Consider it before you do it. Be very conscientious about that thing. But, like for example, I guess, if, if food is an, an idol, then pray before your meals, ask God for wisdom, and give him thanks. If food is a potential idol for you, that is a great way to keep yourself in check. Consider those things. And then, after you've prayed, after you've set those things before God, and you've asked for his wisdom, his guidance, then get accountability. You can't do it alone. If you're tempted in an area, talk to someone else about it who will hold you accountable. Get accountability. And help them, let them help you to fight. Because the fight is worth it. Paul says, flee from idolatry. Flee from it. As far as you can, flee from it. Because whatever good, whatever joy, whatever peace, whatever positive emotions or feelings you might get from your idols, Christ is better. It is a lie from the pit of hell that breaking, killing, and fleeing from your idols will rob you of happiness. It is a lie, Christian. Don't hold on to your idols. Christ is worth more. He is the true source of grace and peace and joy. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But today, don't turn back. Don't turn back. 
Don't go back to your idols after service today. Don't. Lay it aside. Turn to Christ. He cleanses us and He calls us to Himself. Place everything firmly under His rule and reign. We serve a righteously jealous God. He claims us completely as His own. And for some of you, that incites in you some fear. But that's not, that's not what that's meant to, to be. And yes, like Paul gives us this strong verse at the end. He says, shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? So yes, there is, there is a very large downside to provoking the Lord to jealousy. But He is a jealous God and we are completely His. And that being the case, we are not simply His possessions, Christian. We're His children. As His children, we experience the benefits of knowing Him. We experience joy that cannot be stolen. We experience peace, existential peace. The, in John 4, at the woman, with the woman at the well, He offers living water that you may never thirst again. Partake of the living water, Christian. It's there. Go to Jesus. Break your idols. Flee from them. And flee to Jesus. Thanks for listening to the Mosaic Church Sermon Podcast. For more information about Mosaic, including location and service times, or to support us financially, visit our website at mosaicrva.com or find us on Instagram and Facebook at Mosaic Church RVA. Remember, it's not about us, it's all about Jesus.